Dear Sugar is supported by The universe has good news For the lost, lonely, and heartsick Sugar is here, the both of us Speaking straight into your ears I'm Cheryl Strait I'm Steve Allman This is Dear Sugar Radio Some bit of sweetness with me. I check my mailbox every day for some bit of sugar that you send my way. Now, we do not have the benefit of the beautiful and talented Angela Freeman in our studio, usually, when we're no, recording. No, but She was fantastic, though. Yeah, and usually that's me in the same dress, trying to <laughs> sing like that, and it never comes off. I just don't carry it. That's right, yeah. It's a little different seeing Angela in that dress than you, Steve, I have to say. She wears it well. Now, this is actually perfectly in keeping with what we're going to talk about in our first episode, which is reinvention. That's right. A lot of our regular listeners don't know that I reinvent myself as a beautiful and elegant gospel singer. And, uh, and Cheryl, you're somebody actually who has led a wild and beautiful and multi-layered life. What was your first reinvention? Can you recall your first reinvention or an early reinvention? I can, I can. When I think about the biggest leap I made early on, it was in that transition period. I'm not alone in this. A lot of us, I think, were one way when we're sort of kids and teenagers and we we present ourselves in ways basically to survive. I wanted love. I still want love. Yes. But I really wanted love when I was a teenager and acceptance. And so I was the kind of you know, the dumb blonde. I wanted to be popular, I wanted to be pretty, I did everything I could to make myself those things. I was a cheerleader, I was the homecoming queen. And all the while I was secretly this bookish, ambitious, feminist girl. And I couldn't be that. I grew up in a little town in northern Minnesota, and there wasn't room for me there. Right. But, you know, the minute I went to college, I went from my little town in northern Minnesota, McGregor, Minnesota, to the Twin Cities. And I suddenly became this, like, radical feminist with, like, big hairy armpits. And, you know, (laughs) I wore Doc Martens and, like, slips. Remember the ripped-up slips for a dress? That kind of thing. I sure do. And, and, and I, <laughs> and I like went out of my way to, to be sort of challenging in my appearance in that way. Yeah. And when How'd I that went, go over in McGregor? Not so well. Oh. I went back. It was like one of the first things that people were saying, I heard that you don't shave under your arms is what um, people <laughs> said. And it was scandalous. Right. What about you? Well, I think this is, you know, this is what our species does. This is our species trump card is that we're adaptable. And I think we're actually constantly reinventing ourselves. I think the big reinvention that I went through that I don't talk about a lot and I probably even haven't thought about a lot is that I'm a twin and I was very deeply, incredibly close to my twin brother when we were very young. And then I had an older brother and he kind of came in and he divided and conquered quite easily. And then I had to reinvent myself as somebody who wasn't a twin. But that happens all the time. I mean, you know, I went through adolescence being a jock a terrible jock, but pretty, you know, I was devout about it, you know. <laughs> Somehow it seems very plausible to people that I was a terrible jock. Did Steve? Now, I included some of my jockdom in one of my short stories years ago, and it was the fact that I played for the badminton team. <laughs> now, your, your reaction is interesting because I found nothing at all funny about the extraordinarily macho sport of badminton. <laughs> And yet I read this line about this guy announcing that he was on the badminton team and everybody just went into hysterics. And I was like, what is so funny about badminton? Yeah, it's not a sport is the first one. (sighs) 
All right. Well, or at least not a sport about which you can call yourself a jock if you're really good at it. <laughs> Enthusiast, maybe. I think maybe badminton was my gateway sport. We are going to get so many emails about that damn. Oh no, there's a devout faction so of badminton sorry. listeners who are furious I right it's now. It's a sport. It's yeah. a sport. I know. Yeah. Technically. But I think that was I was I was on my way out of jockdom. At, yeah. the mo- at the moment I reached the badminton depot, I knew that I was not long for the world of yeah. serious jobs. Yeah, yeah. Very good. So, you know, we are going to talk about reinvention in some pretty deep and serious ways, too. Yes. Because, of course, I, I think of reinvention as that thing that propels us forward. And, and if we're doing it right, we're constantly getting closer to us essentially being our deepest self, our truest self. That there is not such a distance, like when I was a kid, that distance between who I really was and, and who I wanted to be, or who I was on the inside was so vast. And then, you know, when I was that radical, you know, like, I'm gonna show you all kind of person, that wasn't me either. I had sort of overcorrected like a lot of us do. Right. And, you know, I, th- I think that, you know, we are constantly challenged to reinvent if we're gonna keep things alive in our lives and our souls and spirits, right? That's right. So we are gonna talk to somebody I admire so much, the writer Lydia Yuknovich. Um, she has written so much about reinvention. I would say her stunning memoir, The Chronology of Water, is all about that. It's about how she made herself in the world and remade it and remade it and remade it with all of the beauty and suffering that that entails. Please join me in welcoming her to the stage. Lydia Yuknovich. Lydia Yuknovich. So Lydia is one of my best friends. We were in a writer's group together for a few years. And, you know, just, Lydia, you're really an inspiration to me on this subject of reinvention and so much more. Let's just start with, tell us about one of your first reinventions. I think children who come from tricky or troubled homes start the reinvention process mm-hmm. instantly Yeah. with imaginary friends and imaginary realities and anything to take you out of what your circumstances, so there's that. But the one I was first aware of probably happened more toward puberty age. I had been a competitive athlete as a kid. And what was your sport, Lydia? It was swimming, a real sport. Okay, a real sport. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. And, And I literally had a little boy body like an upside down A or a V. And you know, biceps and hard ass. And and what happened in puberty, you'll like this part. I grew boobs. But... (laughs) Somebody said, yes. Yes, boobs, I grew them too. All right. And it confounded me. And what I was not was popular or any form of beautiful in the conventional way. Or it didn't have boys attracted to me and chasing after me. So these new things on my body literally baffled me. And they also pissed me off. Hmm. Because I was like, what the hell? (laughs) And what do you do with them? And so without knowing what I was doing exactly, my solution to this new figure and bras and sexuality and kind of an hourglassy blonde developing in me was I bought a pair of, do you remember Oshkosh Bagash overalls? Oh yeah. I still have a pair. As do I. I know, sister. And so, Here's the thing though, I bought red ones and white ones and black ones and the striped ones and the yellow ones and blue ones. And I wore them every single day of my life. Overalls rock, they're like a curtain with pants. Exactly. <laughs> Just basically my idea of the perfect piece of clothing. Yeah. Exactly. And the more my body did that, the more I wore these overalls, only I wore them for four years. 
every day. And pretty soon, some other little misfit people were wearing overalls. <laughs> so it started like this weird Seattle-Washington trend of puberty girls wearing overalls every day. But I think I was trying to resist. I was trying to resist a story coming at me of what a girl or what a woman was supposed to be. And it was all I could come up with was these overalls. So that, that's when a, a time when I was really conscious that I was reinventing or resisting something. You also write very beautifully about the kinds of transformations that are basically psychic and emotional necessities where you have to reinvent yourself in order to survive. That's what's so striking about the chronology of water, small backs of children, and other pieces of yours that I've read is there's an undercurrent of reinvention really is an adaptive mechanism, yeah. not just psychically, but literally to survive in a particular setting. Yeah. I think um, those of us who figure out uh, you can't be the same thing for any length of time without self-destructing develop an ability to uh, rely on change as a means of moving through the world. And the upside of that is that's a beautiful idea that you live your whole life with change kind of at your center and it can be an empowering thing. I see a few people going like, like, yeah. It's quite beautiful, you know, that it's not a thing you have to do or a thing in crisis, but it's a beautiful thing you can rely on to help you move forward. If you're changing every other day, <laughs> right. that could get you into a little bit of trickiness. But it's also subversive. The message is always stability, yeah. routine, yeah. don't change, don't be flaky. There's all sorts of labels that we put on people who reinvent themselves, who are protean, or who somehow confound our expectations. Right. So I know I'm not the only one in the room, but some of us make so many mistakes Please, you're at a dear sugar taping. Come on. That we become, this is what we're here for. Yeah. yeah. We become professional at adaptation. Yeah. Because you have to reinterpret your mistakes as something that moves you and does something for you rather than something that shuts you down and makes you self-destruct. So, Lydia, you spoke about that so eloquently in your TED Talk, which you gave recently. And now about a million people or so have watched it online. <laughs> It's so weird. It's a beautiful talk. <laughs> and that word misfit, which you've already used a couple of times, it's in the title, but I, I think that you talk a lot about mistakes, too. And we're going to read a letter, if you'd help us answer a letter, that has something to do with that. Okay. Dear Sugars, I'm 38 years old, and lately I'm more deeply considering the mistakes I've made in life. Like so many people, I made a wide variety of them. Some are big and more public, while others are known only to me. I've caused harm to others. Some of those people were in close relationships with me, and others were casual acquaintances. I'm struggling towards maturity, and I'm trying to open myself to the idea that my mistakes have some value in the form of lessons learned. I have many questions about this process, but here's one of them. How and when do I make things right? I don't want to treat other humans casually, but I also don't want to be so self-centered as to believe that everyone is crushed about my thoughtlessness and immaturity. Do I need to make amends, or is it better to simply move on? I want to have a better perspective on these questions, not only for myself, but also for my children. They're still young, and they have decades of mistakes ahead of them, some of which will be on my watch. And of course, I'm not nearly done making my own mistakes. But I want to fortify myself so that when the inevitable happens and I make mistakes again, I'll be able to rebound more quickly and act when acting is appropriate, rather than doing what I've done in the past and distance myself from the wreckage because I feel overwhelmed. My mistakes are an exhausting burden to carry with me. With gratitude, Fumblebee. <laughs> I love Fumblebee. I, we've all been Fumblebees, right? Lydia and I have written whole fucking books about fumbling. I mean, that's the whole, the whole thing is like, she fucked up and then she tried not to so hard anymore. The end. Did it again. The end. Where's my money? <laughs> and, we, and we aren't the first writers to have done so. Lydia, what do you make of this letter? I like the name Fumblebee. <laughs> I want to be a Fumblebee too. Um, boy, so there are two things. One happens when they ask about amends. Mm -hmm. 
I've always had trouble with the word amends and a sort of model of fucking up that's a little bit based on sin and redemption. That's a... That, oh. <laughs> They're applauding sin, just to, just to clarify. It's, it's a core narrative. We could all agree on that, right? It exists in our culture. It's kind of a core narrative, this sin and redemption. All. And as a person who has never been redeemed a day in their life, I have to hunt for other narratives. Like, are there any for yeah. the rest of us for whom that model doesn't quite work? And so that's where I come down. So the amends thing, I don't even know what the word amends really means. I mean, I know what it means in the dictionary but I'm not sure what it means in life exactly. So I, I pull back from that and I ask myself, if it's not a sin and redemption model, could there be another storyline? And I gotta be honest with you, there's something simple which is just the basic, if you injure someone, right. are you able to say you're sorry? It's so much bigger than we realize it is because this day, there are people in our lives who are unable to just say, shit, I fucked that up, I'm sorry. I hurt you, I'm sorry. And maybe we even have trouble sometimes. Right, and not, I'm sorry you were hurt. No, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry I, I did hurt that. you. I'm sorry yeah, that's, I did that's that. That's such a tricky, hard one. To, to, it is know. tricky, it is hard. I mean, I don't mean it's hard to say sorry. I mean, I think some people can never just say, I'm sorry, I fucked up. I'm, it's always, I'm sorry yeah, you I'm have sorry you feel hurt. Yeah. Right. That's not sorry. Right. <laughs> it's like... Right. No. That's how unfortunate that you're weak. Yeah, how... Un yeah. <laughs> that's what that is. And I'm still pretty. Right. Right. You know, that's... Right. Uh, so it's, it's... Daily I remind myself, it doesn't cost as much as you're scared it does to just walk up and say, I did that wrong, I'm sorry. You know, I hurt you, I'm sorry. And then the second thing I'll say quickly is, it might be more important than amends, this amends idea, to try looking at your own backstory of your life and ask what hurt, because that's partly why you're doing whatever it is you're doing yep. when you cause injury. And one of the things I learned from writing Chronology of Water was I have a backstory, and it's not nothing. And I can go back and look at it, and it won't kill me. And I can figure out where I was hurt. Yeah. And I can tie that to what I'm doing in the world, and I can spend the rest of my life trying to get better at it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So those yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things I wrote about in Wild is this moment I had when I was 23, with an astrologer who said to me, your father has wounded you in the same place that he was wounded. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about when we think of the mistakes we've made or the people we've wounded. You know, it, it isn't to let you off the hook. No. It doesn't make it okay. But it might offer some insight to Fumblebee right. to think about, you know, how is she wounding others in the same ways that she's wounded? Exactly. And, you know, part of this story, you know, Lydia, in your rejection of that sort of sin redemption narrative, for me, the way that I think about it is not so much the sin against cultural values or society rules or, or so forth, but actually a sin against the self. Mm -hmm. What is the true self? And when you don't listen to that, yeah. and you find yourself looking up from that and, and finally realizing you have to reinvent mm -hmm. yourself, you have to take an, a different course, mm -hmm. you know, part of that is redemptive. Even though you didn't wrong somebody else, you wronged yourself, mm -hmm. you know? And I think Fumblebee thinking about the ways that you've hurt yourself by hurting others, mm -hmm. that's going to be maybe the biggest cure of all. Yeah. I think both of the work that you guys produce is very much about allowing the mistakes you've made and the pain you've caused other people and yourself to be your teachers. And I think what Fumblebee you're struggling with or asking about is, has a lot to do with resiliency. How do you bounce back and how do you avoid allowing your mistakes to burden you? And some of that has to do with knowing deep down that you have hurt people and failing to apologize to them and unburden yourself of the guilt that you carry around when you do act out, because people do, we're just little wind-up toys that go around reenacting the traumatic, painful stuff that we never quite fully were able to absorb or recognize. Mm -hmm, yeah. 
You know, we're in search of our stories. And I think what Lydia said is so important to realize. Every place where you were wronged or wounded or pained, you are going to take out on other people and on yourself until you recognize that's a part of your story and has to teach you to live in a new way. Bingo. Yeah. And, you know, I think just for practical advice, I do think, Fumblebee, that it, it can be valuable to say sorry to a few key people. Not everyone means Not you're everyone. sorry. Right. But, you know, one of the things that my kids have taught me, um, because they find themselves needing to apologize many times a day, <laughs> um, and I've talked to them both about this, uh, you know, my daughter will misbehave and they're just like, sorry, and, and she's like, do you forgive me? And I'm like, you know, it doesn't matter if I forgive you. you know, and I don't need the sorry. What I need is for you to act a different way, to, to learn how to obey this rule. You know, no, no, no. Your you guys... sorry doesn't help me, Bobby. <laughs> I you need guys... you to get right. No, no, listen. No, no, no. You guys, I'm not going to back down. Listen, you're not going to shame me about this. No, no, what I mean is, and this is really important, and Fumblebee, I'm trying to actually give you advice about this, right. is the best apology, right, right. Is, is to change your ways. Right. And I don't mean it in, in a petty way with the kids. That's right. Yeah. You know, if, 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 if your kid is, like, punching you and you say, you can't punch me, little two-year-old, like, the best way to get them to be apologetic about, it's not about apologizing, it's trying to act a different way. Right. And so that that sorry isn't necessary anymore. And right. so I think that's how you apologize to people you've wronged, is you learn what you needed to learn from that mistake and move forward in the world, not making it again and again and again, right? right. right? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I see where you're going with that and that makes perfect sense because I have many children, I've lost track, but... <laughs> And, and in, my, in all my relationships, I feel such a burst of gratitude when they behave in a way that is compassionate, where before they were acting out. And yeah. you're right, sorry can be a kind of easy, you know, let me get out of jail free card. I'm sorry, there I said the words, now it's all better. But it's, it's true <laughs> that you prove, what you do is you prove through your actions that you really recognize that the way you were behaving before was hurtful. Yeah. I also think that if, you know, Fumblebee wants to fortify herself, the best fortification on earth, I think, is humility. That it's always to ask, well, what was my role in this particular interaction? Not get lost on a trip about what somebody else did to you or, you know, but to say, well, what did I do? Let me think about what my role was in this and not try to cast out blame and, you know, do all the stuff that we spend. I actually spend a considerable, I wouldn't want to, percentage breakdown, but a lot of my <laughs> life is spent sort of, how can I rewrite the story so that it's not my fault? Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. And uh, Cheryl and I were just talking recently on a topic very close to this about how a thing that's important to remember is every person sitting in the room, including us, we all have necessary fictions we're telling ourselves to prop our lives up. And when something invades your fiction you've told yourself, it's their fault. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. You know, they wronged me. And if you remember, every single person has a fiction. It's more complicated. And you have to find where the edges between the two fictions are and then agree to work on it. Right. That's yeah, to allow someone their point of view. Right. And there are cases, I mean, for anyone who's read The Chronology of Water, I never could forgive my father or abuser person. But here's how far I got. I could admit he had a backstory. And that once he was a boy. Mm -hmm. Right. And I have a son. And there's no boy on the planet I could hate. Mm. And so that was a form of allowing point of view or allowing a story, even to the person who's wronged you the most. I can do that. I can admit he had a backstory, And that something happened. Yes. Let's clap for that. And what I would say to Fumblebee is how this is connected to you is that if you can have that kind of forgiveness for yourself, right. you know, what Lydia just expressed that beautiful sense of remembering that her father was a boy and she loves her boy and therefore she can't hate any boys. I think that when you have that kind of gentleness for yourself as well, 
a lot of that you know, need to, to make amends with other people falls away because you can go forward in a new way. You can be that new person who makes fewer, who harms fewer people. Lydia, thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. Yuknevich. Woohoo! You're the queen. Lydia Yuknevich. Love you. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. But you know what we're doing now. See, it, when we put on our reading glasses, don't you, you need your reading glasses. No. I, I, don't try to act younger than me. Um, <laughs> all right. We know that's Where not true. Where am I? <laughs> you peed your pants again. But um, the, the moment has, have a, has arrived that we are going to... Was that grammatically correct? The moment has arrived. I believe it's the moment <laughs> hath arrived. We're going we're gonna to actually answer your questions. So, yeah. If any of you, we, we ex- didn't expect so many of you to have so many problems. So, um, so, so we're going to be here for about seven more hours. I'm no, I'm teasing. Okay, you, yeah. you want to read the first question? Uh, you want y- me to? Yes, I want you okay, to. Okay, I recently... You did? No, not okay. me. Oh, I'm now it. speaking in the voice of the questioner. Um, I recently made a terrible decision I'm not sure I can live with. I'm in a wonderful relationship, but in a moment of weakness, a friend of mine and I broke down and ended up sleeping together after crushing on each other for over a year. Mm. He's engaged, and I would like to deepen my own commitment with my boyfriend. Naturally, there is plenty about our circumstances that would be helpful to understand our story. But the main question I have is this. Do you think it's possible, Sugars, to build a relationship with this kind of secret lingering in the background? We haven't told anyone and could maybe take it to our graves. But how can I live with myself? Thanks. Racked with guilt. Mm. Okay. Let me, let me take that on as the resident Jew. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> Racked with guilt. I mean, you know, you could certainly take it to your grave, wherever you are out there. Uh, you could do it. You could do it. I would not advise that. You know, you always have a choice. But the real question, as we know from the episodes we did on infidelity and, and talking with Esther Perels, you know, what's the meaning of this? What is the meaning of this one-night affair? And more than that, the year-long crush for which that you know, encounter was really just the culmination. That has some kind of deeper meaning. And if either of you are going to make a, a good and honest promise to the people that you're with, then you have to understand what the meaning of that is. And it's also true that a secret of that magnitude really is going to be corrosive probably to your own capacity to feel like you've really, don't you ultimately really want to feel like the person you're going to settle up with, you've come as clean as you can bear to come with them? Isn't that the idea? Not, Not that you tell them every single thing, but you don't want to have that between you, kind of always in the room. Yeah. Or do you, Cheryl? I no, don't know. What no, do you think? No, no. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I agree with everything you said. And, you know, the thing you fear right now is his fury, his sense of betrayal, his loss of trust in you, and perhaps his decision to leave the relationship because of what you did. And those are all big, scary, hard things. But first I'll say that people in relationships have a right to information that's useful to them so that they can make good decisions about their lives. So, okay, there's first that. But secondly, what you fear may end up being the greatest gift. If the two of you do stay together after you reveal that truth, it will, I know, almost without doubt, actually gain you more intimacy. 
you get to say, I made this choice, I regret it, here are the reasons I made this choice, will you love me still? And when somebody loves you still, after you've shown that face, that is an amazing experience. And that is what intimacy is, that's I think what marriage is, I think it's what any kind of long-term union is gonna ultimately demand, is you know, really those kinds of tests where it, it is sometimes hard to love your partner through some of those truths. But I think that if you can be brave enough to tell that truth, and your boyfriend does decide to stick with you, it is going to lead to like a deeper bond and a more honest intimacy, a more honest terrain in which you can actually talk about your sex life and your desires. So you gotta do it. But uh, not necessarily an intermission. All right. Dear Sugars, I am the mother of a 16-year-old girl. She confides a great deal in me, and I have tried to walk the line between mom and confidant as she has become sexually active. It's not easy, but I've continued to support her in her decision-making with my main concern having to do with encouraging her own self-regard when making choices. I know that this is not the norm, and she always tells me that her friends don't confide in their parents to the same degree, and many are just plain in the dark. I have been trusting my instincts on this, and don't get me wrong, I express my opinion to her. I'm not trying to be her friend, but sugars. Am I not seeing something here? Am I going to regret this? I just can't stand the thought of locking her up and then letting her loose in two years. And it is not signed because she literally filled every square centimeter of the... So the concern is about being too open, yeah, I guess I'm trying... Right. Am, to, I, am I making a mistake in taking this approach? You know, yeah. I don't think you're making a mistake. You know, as a parent myself, that's the approach I take. I get my kids in the car, and I'll go, okay, we're going to talk about sex. And, um, and they're like, again? Uh, again? Like this is the fifth day in a row. All I right. have done this since my kids were really little. Because I just thought we're going to get in before they're embarrassed about us talking about this stuff. And, you know, and I do hope that my kids will come to me when they have questions. I give my kids a lot of information and they cringe and they're like, this is so gross. But, you know, I, ha I have to say both of them, they're, they're now 12 and 10. And, you know, my son, he, he just turned 12 a couple months ago. And we had had this big talk about more sex. And... Um, <laughs> And I gave him a book, uh, a book that I really recommend to everyone. Jane Fonda wrote a, an amazing book called Being a Teen. And it's really a great sex book. I even learned some things um, from Jane Fonda. And um, it's frank, and it's for both boys and girls, and it's about everything. And so I gave my son this book, and he you know, read it, and he said to me, you know, Mom, this is, it's really awkward, you know, the way you are. And... Um, <laughs> But he said, you know, I have to say, I really am I'm glad. And I feel sorry for people who have normal mothers. <laughs> he actually said that. And, um, and, you know, what he meant is he was like, I need this information. Right. And he does. Mm -hmm. And so I say give it. And, like, obviously it's really important, I think, to have boundaries. And you say here, you're, you're not like the friend. You know, you are still the parent. And so I think that, you know, as long as you're mindful of boundaries, I think... Yeah that open communication is the way to go. Oh yeah, this is, I, I think this is the, yeah. I don't know, my children, my oldest is nine and then, you know, younger than that. So I have no idea. But I have two girls and I know that it's coming. I know that they and my son will eventually be teenagers and I'll take my life. Um, no, no, that's not what's gonna happen. What's gonna happen is I really hope devoutly that I have the sort of relationship that you're describing. Because I do the research, and the research I mean I bug people who have teenage kids, and I say, what do I need to do? And every parent who has a good relationship with their teenage kids says, just keep the lines of communication open. Just make sure that they know that they can talk to you without judgment or without excessive judgment. Um, and, you know, I mean, what, what you're saying is you want your daughter to think about these decisions that she's making as an increasingly independent person with her own volition, thinking about her own self-regard, her respect for herself. And that makes total sense to me. And in the kind of patriarchal, sort of pornographied world we're living in, it feels to me absolutely essential 
that mothers and other older role models are sending that message to teenage boys and girls, but especially as a mom, that's what you want, is to not go into that you know, uh, space capsule where you don't have any contact with your teenage kids and they've turned you off because they know they're either gonna get judgment from you or they're gonna be kept in the dark about how really tough it is to become a teenager in this world or a sexual being in this world. So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you're doing just what every parent that I admire tells me you need to do, which is beautiful. Yeah, good job. Good job, Mom. Mom in the room. Okay. So, Steve, this question's a little more for you than me, but here we go. Oh, boy. I listen to Dear Sugar, and I know you speak to things other than hiking. Having said that, I'm about to leave on my first solo backpacking trip tomorrow. Any advice? Now, no, I, 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 my, my advice would be to not ask my advice. <laughs> what do you think, Sheila? My advice is to think of a long backpacking trip as like a long relationship. And that is, there's this thing I call retrospective fun. Um, <laughs> which is... And this, it, it's, that, it's that you're not having fun in the moment. But when you're done with it, you will look back and go, you know, that was actually pretty fun. I'm glad I... I... <laughs> so you have to stick it out. It's going to hurt. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to wish you hadn't done it sometimes and stick it out, and there's a huge reward at the end. Oh my Have God. fun. Retrospective fun. Retrospective fun, I love that. Okay. Dear Sugars, I'm in love with two men, one who is full of adventure, lust, and passion, the other stability, generosity, and compassion. Who do I choose? Do I have to choose? Cheryl Strait, do I have to choose? No, no. But I'm in love with two men. Oh. I can have well, them both. I mean, well, there, there are many models of loving people, as we know. <laughs> yes. You know, I think, well, I mean, the reason you're asking this question is obviously you're conflicted about loving two men. So, yeah, I would say, you know, the first thing, I mean, when you start to talk about people in these categorical terms, which I know you're doing just for the purpose of this question, but I mean, maybe you're getting kind of stuck there. Sometimes the language we use to describe, you know, the people we know and love can actually be you know, limiting us. And I think that maybe don't be thinking about them as like, you're the adventurous one, you're the generous one, yeah. but really think of them as humans and how you feel in their company and how good they are in the sack. And then go with that one. A typically deep, thoughtful, <laughs> not short-term, prurient answer from Cheryl Strait. Just what we would expect. Uh, you know, I think that's right, though, that, that when you start to flatten people out, you sort of typecast them. This one is generous and stable and compassionate. This one is adventure and full of love. And it's, uh, I think people are actually quite complicated. Indeed. And, and you also have to think about where you are in your life. People's needs change. I will say, having reached an advanced age, that you know, I would make a different set of decisions. When I was 25, 30, 35, whatever, I was looking for different things. So some of this is doing a self-inventory and saying, what am I looking for in a partner right now? How important is adventure versus stability? You know, you just have to do a self-inventory and I don't think it's a good idea to choose both, unless that's okay with them, and it's okay with you, because that's, that's another decision that people can make. You know, in this culture, we get very hung up on one person has to satisfy everything. We get hung up with that, you know, with parent-child relationships, and especially with partners, and that's nonsense. You know, it, it takes a lot of people to, you know, satisfy all the needs that, as human beings, we come to quite honestly, and, you know, so... Sometimes you do need somebody who's stable and generous and all that stuff, but as a friend. And then you have the hot, passionate lover who's... That's right. And if you do, you know, opt for both of them and you're open about it, you'll really learn just how generous the one is and adventurous the other is. <laughs> right? Nice. 
Okay, here's a great one, Steve. What is the worst advice you got in your 20s? That mullet looks great. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What about you? Oh, my God. Um, so I won some sort of little amount of money, like $2,000. And it was a writing grant. It was an award. It was some sort of thing. And right. my grandmother, my mother's mother, who, when I explained to her that I was going to spend a couple of months writing my first book, you know, because it was the grant was, that was the purpose of the grant. She was like, no, use it as a down payment on a house. And I was like, you don't understand. I, I don't want stability. I want to write. And, you know, what's crazy about that is, you know, I, I had very few voices speaking to me in those kinds of terms when I was in my 20s. One of the great sort of luxuries, I mean, obviously the great sorrows of my life is that I was an orphan by the time I was in my 20s, but I also didn't have anyone telling me what to do. And so I just got to be a writer without anyone trying to interfere with that and saying, you should get a real job. You know, you should spend your money in right. more reasonable ways. Get a mortgage. And right. so it was, you know, it was terrible advice, and I really think it's important for people to hear. Being reasonable financially, I think, is really a bad idea a lot of times. You're like... you're it like. Is. Really You're is. like the anti-Susie Orman. That's right. I love it. Like, I, I'm like, I am so Financial responsibility is really a bad idea. And so anyone who told me in my 20s to, to, to make the safe choice when it came to money was right. absolutely wrong. And also recognize that I'm sure your grandmother, even though she gave you advice that was not helpful for you and that you did not take, was doing so you know, with good intention. She was. She also told me, never let your husband see you fully naked. <laughs> Always keep some scrim of clothing on. She's going to write a book. She's still alive. It's advice from Cheryl's grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> just a scrim. Just to, just to keep him guessing. <laughs> All right. Dear oh, Sugars... I am a woman who has been in a relationship with another woman for 2.5 years. I grew up in a conservative Christian home, and my parents have known about my girlfriend for 1.5 years. For the first year, they didn't say much except that I'm wrong and God doesn't approve. But in the past six months, they have really increased their unsupportiveness. That's a generous word. Uh, their unsupportiveness through emails, YouTube videos, and text messages. So they're very tech-savvy group of, uh, okay. Uh, I have said a couple of times that we are going to just have to agree to disagree. How much is too much? When do I tell them they have to choose between a relationship with me or none? It puts a ton of strain on my relationship and my confidence and truly leaves me heartbroken. My parents are fun people and I like spending time with them, but now it's just awkward and sad and this is signed with a beautiful little heart, heartbroken queer. Aww. That's so hard. I'm so sorry yeah. that you have to make that choice. But it seems really clear to me that you've reached that point now. And maybe a helpful way to think about it is you're not making the choice for them. What you're saying is you're setting a boundary. You're saying, I need to be treated with kindness and respect, and so does my partner. And if you're not going to give that to me, we can't have a relationship. And so then, you know, they get to make the choice then about how they're going to behave. It's a very simple place to land, and it's very painful to get there. I know that because I have had to do that in my own life in a couple of relationships. There are great consequences, but the greatest one is that you are no longer a person who's treated like shit for loving the person you love. Right. Okay, we just have time for a couple more questions. Yeah. Maybe, maybe two more? Yeah, yeah, two. Okay. Quickies. Do you use a mantra to overcome your fear? And if so, what is it? What do you tell yourself when you're afraid, Steve? <sighs> well, what I generally try to do... At first, I sit huddled in a corner for about <laughs> two hours. But what, what I try to do, uh, like... What I associate is waking up, I sometimes have anxiety in the morning and a kind of a feeling of dread when I get up. And it's very hard to, when you're in this, and it's a body state, to do this. But what I try to say is this is not how I'm going to feel forever. 
this is not a permanent state. This is a, a moment in my life that, you know, I don't want to wallow in it, but it's where I am right now. But it's not where I'm going to be, you know, if I can drag my ass out of bed and get a piece of chocolate and, you know, see where my children are and remember that life is joyous and full of wonder and possibility. And, you know, you're not there always. It's just that when you are frightened or sad or, you know, sort of struck down by dread or anxiety, it feels like it's always going to be that way. And it's not always going to be that way. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I do that too. And I, I think, you know, before, it, it, it doesn't matter exactly what we say to ourselves. It's that we do say something to ourselves. I, I would guess that, you know, tapping into that inner voice has been probably the, the greatest thing that's contributed to my psychological well-being over time, is learning how to talk to myself, to tell myself the good story. When I was hiking on the PCT alone, and I say this in well, my mantra was, I am not afraid, which is not a profound statement, and it's also not even true. Um, That's right. It, and it didn't matter. I mean, of course, right. you know, I had to say I'm not afraid at what moment? At right. the moment that I was afraid. Right. And so what I was saying is, I am not afraid. Right. That fear is just one little piece of me what I am is the person who's going to just walk right through this fear right. and, and not allow fear to be the thing that tells me what to do or limits my ability to do what I want to do. Beautiful. Right? Yeah. It is a particularly American hang-up or a kind of misperception. We view courage to be the absence of fear, and that's fucking bullshit. Courage is living with fear and acting despite at the same time being afraid. All right, last one. This is ridiculous. This is going way too fast. Last one. How do you learn to love and accept the parts of yourself that you don't love? Cheryl Strait. Oh, this is a hard one. Sorry. Um, well, I think part of it is, again, you know, Fumblebee. Like, the, just that idea of that... You know, that we don't have to be perfect to, to be loved. You know, you don't have to be the person who would never cheated on your partner to be worthy of their love. You don't have to be the person who never told a lie or never hurt someone else or never did the wrong thing. You know, you, you have to be the person who strives for goodness and strives for forgiveness when you've done harm or strives to learn from your lessons. And so that's, you know, it, to me, it was like once I embraced what Lydia has so beautifully called the misfit. The misfit that we all are, right? The places in us that don't fit with who we want to be, who we're told to be, who, who others hope we are. But to say, you know, it's actually like, I love this kind of mess, this mess that always tries to do the right thing. Mm. You know, that's how I've come to peace with it myself. Yeah, I, I, you know, what's interesting is that every time that Cheryl or Lydia or myself or most of the writers who we have on Dear Sugar, you know, they will talk about the fact that it was admitting to their doubt and uncertainty, their feelings of weakness, their feelings of insecurity and insufficiency. Those are the things that people respond to with incredible gratitude because every single one of us is walking around with that same hidden story, same hidden sets of shames and, you know, about our bodies, about how we move through the world, about how much money we make and who we love and well enough. And that's the human arrangement. And it's when we front with that and try to cover it up that we lead these kind of, these partial lives, these dishonest lives. And then when we unburden ourselves, the world says, oh, thank you. You're a mess too? Great. We could start the work. All right. <laughs> oh. Woohoo! So, Having finished the work of just the first episode, just episode one, we need to thank this audience. Thank you guys for being here tonight in Revolution Hall in beautiful Portland, Oregon. We are going to be uh, back with the second show recorded here at Revolution Hall. I have to do a little bit of business. Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Lisa Tobin. We're recording here at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Thank you to the whole team here, including 
Brian Sturgis, Ray Mullen, Jim Brunberg. Jim is also one half of Wonderly, our house band here tonight, and the band behind all the music that you hear on our podcast. And of course, thank you to Lydia Yuknovich and our musicians, Angela Freeman. Uh, and we're going to do something special as we go to intermission, which is kind of awesome. Uh, we're going to get a special performance just for tonight for you guys by the Portland musician Cat Hawk. Cat Hawk. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys very much. That's it.